West Legal Ed Center would like to welcome you to Hot Topics in Cross-Border Insolvency. To send a question to the presenters, um, use the box found under the Participation tab. Program materials can be found under your Supplements tab. It is my pleasure to introduce our panelists, uh, Sarah Murray, Felipe Vieira, and Niana Miller. I'll turn the floor over to them now for further introductions. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and welcome. My name is Niana Miller, and I will be your host for this discussion about hot topics in cross-border insolvency. If you've turned into tuned in for any of the other episodes in the Secor Law Summer Series, then you've had a primer on issues that arise in cases of fraud and asset concealment. For example, in our most recent episode, Bob Linquist and Juan Mendoza discussed how financial investigative tools and forensic analysis can help us understand the mindset of a fraudster. In today's episode, we're going to focus on a set of very powerful tools that can be used to take control away from the fraudster and literally get inside of the company that's been used as a vehicle for fraud. Now, insolvency can also be used to rehabilitate a troubled company, to restructure its debts, and to keep it operating. And while those are very important objectives, I'm speaking today with a couple of litigators and asset recovery lawyers. So we are gonna focus on the situation that we see all too often in our practice. This is an episode about how the insolvency process in the US, the UK, and Brazil is being used to pursue assets that the debtor may have concealed, improperly stripped away from the company, or taken offshore in an attempt to remove them from the creditor's reach. My guests today are Sarah Murray and Felipe Vieira. Sarah is the head of the dispute resolution practice at Stevens and Bolton in England and focuses on cases involving fraud and asset recovery within her practice. Thanks for being here, Sarah. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Felipe is an attorney at Duarte Forcel Advogados in São Paulo, Brazil. Felipe has represented a number of Brazilian bankruptcy trustees and private sector clients who bring him in to investigate, trace, and recover assets that are diverted from the company and concealed, often in elaborate offshore structures. Felipe, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Diana. So let's start with the basics. The UNCTRAL model law is a piece of model legislation that was prepared and promoted by the UN Commission on International Trade Law. It provides a framework that authorizes and encourages cooperation and coordination between jurisdictions when an insolvency has ramifications in more than one jurisdiction. Legislation based on the model law has been adopted in 49 states and in a total of 53 jurisdictions most recently in Brazil. Our US-based listeners are probably most familiar with our enactment of the model law in chapter 15 of the US Bankruptcy Code. Sarah, why don't you start by telling us a bit about the enactment of the model law in the UK? Sure, I'd love to. Um, it was enacted by uh, the cross-border insolvency regulations back in 2006, so it's been in our, our law for some time now, and it allows a foreign representative, for example a liquidator or an administrator, to ask the British courts for assistance in connection with foreign insolvency proceedings. 
For the British court to get involved, those foreign proceedings have to be collective, which means they have to be for the benefit of all the creditors of the company. Um, If they're not collective, then the English court can't assist using the cross-border insolvency regulations, although there might be other options available, as we'll come on to discuss later. Um, And if the British courts agree that proceedings are collective, they can help in a number of different ways, depending on whether the foreign proceedings are foreign main proceedings or foreign non-main proceedings. So what you've just described, Sarah, is is pretty much the same as the recognition process for a foreign proceeding in the U.S., which is, of course, not surprising because both countries enacted uh, legislation that's very faithful to the text of the model law. Um, and, and we've had it in effect in the U.S. since 2005. So we've also had a similar um, time to develop the case law under that, that model law. Um, but Felipe, what about Brazil? Can you tell us about the new legislation based on the model law that was enacted recently in Brazil and whether there are any notable differences in Brazil's implementation of the model law? Sure. Uh, well, despite the fact that uh, transnational insolvency was not regulated in Brazil until 2020, uh, Brazilian courts has allowed certain foreign companies to be a part of a Brazilian recognition procedure, but only if the court recognized that Brazil is the center of the main interest. Uh, however, there was no high level of certainty if whether or not those entities could be or not subjected to the reorganization procedure. Uh, in December 2020, um, the Brazilian legislator incorporated almost in full the provision of the cross-border insolvency, the Central cross-border uh, model law, and uh, including the recognition of foreign insolvency proceedings in Brazil and the corporations with foreign authorities. Uh, the, leg- the Brazilian legislation followed the, per- the main purposes of the model law and the basic principles such as uh, certainty for trade, fair and efficient administration, protection and maximization of the assets, preservation of the jobs, and uh, most of the other important provisions of the model law. However, uh, as Brazil is a civil law country, some of the provisions were adapted to prevent any legislative conflict. And I think uh, as as a matter of an example, uh, one unique aspect of the Brazilian legislation is the involvement of the public prosecutor. So different from what I saw in other uh, similar um, legislation, the state prosecutor shall participate in a transnational proceeding to oversee the application of the law and make sure that there is no illegal transaction in the midst of the of the reorganization procedure. Excellent. So, Felipe, what about the distinction that Sarah mentioned between recognition of foreign main and foreign main uh, non-main proceedings? Uh, what is what is that? What does that distinction actually mean? This is, a, this is a quite relevant distinction, and, uh, and there are several as- aspects to be considered, but if I could point one out, uh, I think it will be the, the farming proceeding, a proceeding taking place in the country which the debtor has the center of its main interest. And for example, a uh, registry uh, um, head office, and uh, I think for the sake of Brazilian jurisprudence, it's the place where the important decision, decisions are made, where the company is managed from. Uh, ergo, uh, for no main proceedings, are uh, proceedings taking place in a country where the debtor does not have his, as, uh, his head office, but only a branch or a couple of assets that shall be liquidated if necessary. Uh, to give just a fair example, uh, in an insolvency, let's say, uh, in an insolvency proceedings filed in California against a Californian company, but such company have assets and liabilities in Brazil, 
the foreign representative of that insolvency procedure in the US could file for recognition in Brazil and therefore causing the Brazilian procedure to, uh, proceeding to be recognized as the foreign non-main proceeding, while the one in US will be recognized as the main proceeding. Excellent. Um, yesterday when we were speaking, Felipe, you mentioned that uh, Brazil has actually seen its first um, first case filed under the model law. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, that's true. Uh, the, it was a Singapore case, if I recall cor uh, correctly. Uh, the, it was a Singapore entity in reorganization, but a couple of drill ships were parked in Rio de Janeiro and they, have a they had a branch assets and liabilities there. So I think it was uh, two weeks ago, a uh, judge from Rio de Janeiro granted granted relief, the stay order, orders that we're gonna talk about uh, a little further on this podcast. And uh, uh, granted any, uh, a lot of powers to the foreign representative so we can actually manage the liquidation of the assets in Brazil. Great. Yeah, we look forward to seeing how that works out in, in practice and how that case develops the, the jurisprudence in Brazil. So, so do we. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, um, back to the UK for a moment. The distinction mm. between foreign main proceedings and foreign non-main proceedings, is that the same in the UK? Yep, it is uh, exactly the same. And so what are the practical implications of that distinction in the UK? Okay, so that it really affects what the English court is able to do in support of the proceedings. Um, when you have foreign main proceedings, the English court will impose an automatic stay, which prevents creditor and debtor action in the jurisdiction. And what that effectively means is that no one can commence any new action in relation to the debtor's assets, rights, obligations or liabilities. Any ongoing actions, for example, uh, ongoing lawsuits, are also stayed so that the assets are preserved. And that's really useful for uh, liquidators, whether they're foreign or domestic. It gives them breathing space to investigate the position and work out what's gone on. In addition, the liquidators can ask the court for any other relief that they think they need, and the court has a general discretion to grant it if they think it's justified. That can be contrasted with foreign non-main proceedings um, where there's no automatic stay, but again, the court has general discretion to grant appropriate relief, but it would be up to the liquidators to make their case for needing it. So, you know, you don't get that sort of automatic protection. Okay, so the effects of recognition of foreign main and non-main proceedings in the U.S. Um, and in, in other jurisdictions, the U.K. and Brazil, they're all very similar. Um, and it seems that the U.S. and the U.K. have an automatic stay that is very similar in scope. Um, so Sarah mentioned specifically the stay of all litigation against the debtor. Um, but Brazil, on the other hand, has a different interpretation of the automatic stay. That is the stay available both in a domestic organization, reorganization or bank bankruptcy in Brazil and in cross-border bankruptcies recognized under Brazil's version of the model law. Um, which is a little bit narrower than what Sarah just described. So, uh, Felipe, can you describe the difference and maybe give us a bit of insight about why this difference exists? Of course. Uh, well, there is, so first thing is there is an automatic stay of all the enforcement proceedings, so uh, the debtor can be protected of, of uh, any enforcement of bank accounts, seize of bank accounts or other assets. But I think the relevant change, the relevant difference actually, would be that uh, the main decision is cases where the actual existence of the debt is not yet final. 
Uh, as an example, so uh, there's a car crash involving the entity reorganization, but there is no final order against any of the parties. So therefore, this case remains uh, uh, open and ongoing until there is a final say. If there's a final ruling, a money judgment, then this judgment will be duly uh, uh, included within the reorganization. Okay, so to put it another way, um, pre-judgment litigation against the debtor is not stayed, but post-judgment execution or enforcement against the debtor's assets is stayed. Yep. Um, so, Sarah, what other advantages are there uh, associated with getting the British courts to recognize the foreign proceedings? Well, I think it's, I mean, it's useful in all cases, um, whether, you know, whether there's a sort of fraud or foul, foul play or not, but it's particularly useful where the liquidator suspects that something has gone on um, that's not quite right. Because once the foreign proceedings are recognised, the overseas liquidator has all sorts of powers, and in particular, um, he or she can look for reviewable transactions. Um, and that's, uh, they fall into two categories. So you have transactions at an undervalue, um, uh, where the debtor is disposing of assets for far less than they're worth to get them out of the company or the possession of an individual. Um, and then you have preferences where a debtor prefers one creditor of the company um, to put them in a better position than they otherwise would have been in a liquidation. So that sounds similar to the powers that a trustee in a domestic US bankruptcy has to claw back transactions. Mm -hmm. uh, however, there's an important distinction when we're in cross-border cases. Uh, the way the model law has been implemented here in the U.S., the foreign representative in a Chapter 15 case does not have access to the clawback provisions in other parts of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code. But they're not without a remedy simply because of that. Instead, our courts have held that the law governing the foreign main proceedings should be applied to determine whether a transaction was fraudulent or preferential. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, so US courts would apply foreign law to determine whether a transfer made by the debtor is valid or avoidable in a Chapter 15 case. H how does that work in practice? Uh, well, in practice, it can be a bit tricky, but US courts apply foreign law in a variety of contexts, not just under Chapter 15 of the Bankruptcy Code. Um, the Bankruptcy Court, uh, together with any of our trial courts, have great flexibility to determine um, and receive information that it deems sufficient to understand and apply foreign law. So for US lawyers listening to this podcast, um, I would refer you to rule 44.1 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure and to the cases decided under that rule. Um, I don't have any new developments to report with respect to the rule, so I won't dwell on it. Um, but for those who are not familiar, it basically provides federal courts with broad discretion to consider any relevant material or source, including testimony, whether or not it was submitted by a party and whether or not it's admissible under the federal rules of evidence in making it, whenever they make a determination of foreign law. So this uh, tremendous flexibility has been applied in a number of cases. Of course, the, you know, as we all know, the world is getting more and more international. So we have more of these complicated choice of law issues and many situations like this under, under Chapter 15, where we have to look to foreign law. So I'd say we have a well-established framework um, under which U.S. judges can make determinations of foreign law, but it's actually in navigating the overlap between U.S. law and foreign law where some of the trickiest issues can arise. 
Um, for example, even though the foreign representative doesn't and, and can't rely on the bankruptcy code's provisions relating to fraudulent transfers that occurred before the bankruptcy began, the trustee does have the power to avoid unauthorized post-petition transfers under the bankruptcy code. So, for example, if the debtor attempts to transfer property while the Chapter 15 case is pending, then the foreign representative can look to the avoidance powers in Section 550. That's quite interesting. Uh, in Brazil, we're not allowed to bring any foreign law, but uh, the point is the discretion of the court uh, is quite broad to provide any relief necessary. Uh, where necessary to protect the assets of the debtor or the interest of the creditors, the Brazilian court may, at the request of the foreign representative or even the state prosecutor, to grant any appropriate relief, including but not limited. Uh, the avoidance of any act of disposal of the debtor's known um, current assets made without the court approval, the examination of witnesses, production of evidence, delivery of information concerning the debtor assets, affairs, rights, obligations, and uh, granting, to be honest, any additional relief that may be uh, necessary for the protection of the of the assets of the of the entity. Excellent, excellent. Um, Sarah, on the other hand, does an English court sitting in an ancillary case? Um, so Felipe said that in Brazil they would apply Brazilian law to these mm -hmm. avoidance actions. Would, would an English court apply English law or foreign law to these types of transactions? English law. It, it would apply English law, yeah. And uh, um, what about the look-back period? How mm. far back will an English court look in a clawback action? So a liquidator can look back two years before the administration of the foreign proceedings for transactions at an undervalue. Uh, and if you're talking about a bankruptcy, you know, an individual, the trustee in bankruptcy can potentially look back five years in relation to transactions at an undervalue. In relation to preferences, the relevant look back period is six months. Um, and if the court agrees that the transactions are at an undervalue or preference, it orders that they're set aside. And then the money or the asset that you're talking about will come back into the company for distribution to the creditors. And and Felipe, what about Brazil? What's the look back period under Brazilian law for clawback actions? So the judicial administrator, which is our trustee here, uh, would have three years starting for the bankruptcy decree to file a clawback claim. But there's no look back period. Uh, there are, of course, objective requirements to be demonstrated. But the main principle is that a fraudulent operation cannot harm creditors of the state. Okay, and in particular, I think you've mentioned before that um, transactions at an at an undervalue, right, or transactions for no value. Yes, the the law provides for several uh, operations that can be subdued to this uh, provision, but mainly is operations for no consideration, undervalue, and with intention to harm third parties or creditors. Excellent. Um, well, I think we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit here. Um, about information gathering. But before I do that, I want to encourage our, our listeners who might be listening to this live to submit any questions if they have questions during the, the podcast. Um, we will be taking a look at, at questions um, later in the podcast. So let's talk about um, what is really the key to any good asset recovery effort, and that is information. So we all know that knowledge is power, but when the insiders of a company uh, were misbehaving, then a trustee often arrives on the scene quite late in the game. 
Um, Felipe, you've probably lost count of the number of cases where the insiders of the company made up some crazy excuse um, for not having accounting records or ha for having very uh, poor accounting records. Uh, <laughs> I can't tell you how many cases I've seen uh, where they never produced the accounting records at all, despite it's an obligation of every Brazilian company to keep uh, accordingly the bookkeeping, bank records, and information as to the transactions of the entity. Uh, however, uh, the point is uh, the lack of bookkeeping is a crime provided on the bankruptcy legislation and could also support a veil-piercing request so the assets of the former manager or the controllers of the group could even be subjected uh, and responsible for damages or even for the whole debt. Uh, the more than that, the point is that uh, uh, since most of the bookkeeping now became uh, electronic, we, we can now access directly to the Brazilian IRS and other third parties to try to reconstruct all the information so we don't, so the creditors won't suffer the whole damages due to the uh, uh, terrible bookkeeping by, by, the, by from the administrative control and the controllers. Yeah, re reconstructing accounting records is is mind blowing, and and as a lawyer, it sounds exhausting. I'm I'm very glad that I'm not the accountant task for that <laughs> work. Um, but honestly, even in less extreme cases, right, where there are books, um, insiders may have kept very good records, but they simply disguised uh, certain transactions, right? They they may have made overpayments to insiders or simply sold an asset for less than market value. Um, so let's imagine here a scenario where a U.S. liquidator, a Chapter 7 trustee, is dealing with an insolvency and has managed to gather some evidence that points to an individual, let's say in England, because we have Sarah, um, in England being involved in a fraud that has led to or contributed to the insolvency. So Sarah, how can the English courts help? Oh, there's so many ways that the English courts can help. Um, and you'll be pleased to hear, I mean, in my totally unbiased opinion, uh, our court system is in, it's one of the best in the world for uh, quickly and efficiently helping an innocent victim of fraud or a liquidator to try and recover their assets or their money. Um, and so there's two main ways that that can be done. Um, first of all, tools that help you gather information. And then second of all, tools to help preserve the assets. Okay, great. Let's start with the tools to gather information. If you have some information about the fraud, what can you do to find out more about it? Well, this brings me to my favourite thing in litigation, which is uh, a search and seize order, uh, which is also sometimes called an Anton Pillar order after the case that uh, that created it. Um, and it has been described by the English judici judiciary as the nuclear weapon of litigation. Um, and there are some high hurdles to meet to get one. But uh, if you were to put it into military terms, it is pure shock and awe. Uh, so that's why it's my favourite. Well, that definitely sounds exciting. Um, please tell me how that works. Well, I'd love to. Um, so it's used to get information. Uh, documents or materials that can help expose the extent of a wrongdoing. Um, and as you'd expect with something that is such a powerful remedy, there are some uh, some things you have to establish to the satisfaction of the court. Uh, first of all, that you have a good case. Um, and we're not going on a fishing expedition here because the court is not going to grant this kind of relief on a sort of wing on a prayer basis. Um, next, that the respondent has already caused you some very serious damage. Um, so siphoned off assets, or done something pretty bad um, and you'll need to have evidence of that. 
then that there's clear evidence that the respondent both has the information and documents that you're looking for or you're seeking um, and that there's a risk that uh, he or she might destroy or dispose of them if you don't get the order. Um, and so that means you've got to convince the court that the respondent is going to ignore a court order or not comply with it, um, which which in turn means showing evidence of bad behaviour in the past. You can't rock up to court and say, we think uh, we think there's a risk because they're generally not a very nice person. You have to have something quite quite concrete for the court to take notice. Then uh, you have to establish that the harm that's going to be caused to the respondent is not excessive or out of proportion. And then on top of that, if you're wrong and uh, about all of this and the order's granted and it turns out later that it shouldn't have been and actually the respondent's completely innocent, um, you can pay the respondent compensation for the losses that they have suffered as a result of the order being wrongly granted, which can be quite a high hurdle. Um, Layered on top of that again is that you obviously are going to make this application without telling the respondent what you're doing, um, because if you told them it would defeat the whole point. And therefore the court imposes a duty on you, which it calls the duty of full and frank disclosure. And that means you've got to tell the court everything, uh, factual and legal, um, that might be material in deci deciding whether or not to grant the order, even if it harms your case. So it's a really weird position to be in for a lawyer to be standing up in front of a judge pointing out all the holes and uh, sort of worrying things about your own case. But if you don't do it, um, the court might set the order aside later. So it must be complied with. We, we always say the hardest adversary at all, of all is the empty chair, right? Where, Quite right. Quite right. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about this uh, requirement that you show you could pay the respondent compensations if the um, if the order is wrongly granted how is that um, implemented in practice is it a bond are you required to post a bond or uh, just make a verbal uh, undertaking it depends. So, I mean, if you're dealing with a, a, a big company, an established company, you can exhibit your accounts to a statement that you give to the court and say, look, we've got, you know, bags of cash in the bank. And if it's wrong, uh, the accounts show that, that we can meet any damage they might have suffered. And that will be enough. It's far more tricky when you're acting for a liquidator of an insolvent company or um, a, a, an applicant that, that doesn't have ready funds. And in those cases, the court may well require you to pay some money into court as a almost like a bond so that if you are wrong the money's sitting there um, but either way it requires you to make a, a binding commitment and undertaking to the court that you will satisfy um, any any losses suffered and that's not to be taken lightly. That's right um, so that's a very high hurdle and the other um, requirements about the wrong you know showing of the wrongdoing and, and um, establishing your case in advance mm. Are, are all very high hurdles. So mm. why would I put my client through this? <laughs> but that's off, the best right? part. That's the best part. So if you get your order, if the court grants it, uh, you get to go to the premises of the respondent, um, you and your legal team. You take an independent third party lawyer 
with you, the supervising solicitor as they're known. Um, you rock up with your order, you hand it over to the respondent and the respondent then has two hours to seek legal advice um, of their own. But after that, they must allow you to search for and take all the documents and material covered by the order. Where that's behind passwords or hidden in computers, they've got to give you those passwords. And if you're dealing with an old fashioned kind of a fraudster who still has a filing cabinet, they've got to literally hand over the keys to the filing cabinet so you can take the stuff out of it. Um, Sometimes you'll you'll find that the that the respondent wants to withhold documents, either because they attract privilege, you know, legal privilege under the the English rules, um, or because they are incriminating. And we don't have um, the equivalent of your Fifth Amendment, but we do have a right to privilege over uh, against self-incrimination um, in, in some narrow circumstances. But you can't just take a bundle of documents and say, I'm not giving these to you, sorry, go away. Um, the respondent has to hand them to the supervising solicitor, this independent third party, and allow the supervising solicitor to review and check them. And the supervising solicitor decides whether they do attract privilege, um, either against self-incrimination or more generally. Um, and so you have that comfort. So, so the defendant, the respondent can't just withhold documents they don't want to give you. Okay, so let me, let me get this straight. You have a couple of lawyers in suits, the, the yep. solicitor and the supervising solicitor show up, knock on the door, show this person a, people, a piece of paper, and two hours later they get to walk in and take documents and information. <laughs> that's right, and that's why I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I don't mean to be cynical, but are British people just more polite than Americans? Because um, if I don't show up with a police officer or a U.S. marshal, I'm pretty sure the debtors and his allies are just going to tell me to go pound sand. Yeah, um, <laughs> is that is that a, is that an American phrase? No, well, I'm not going to comment <laughs> that's polite, on. <laughs> that's a polite American phrase. <laughs> okay, good, 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 good. Um, let's keep it polite. I'm not going to comment on the respective politeness of English and American people because it would not be polite to do so. But um, <laughs> the the role of the yeah <laughs> the role of the supervising solicitor is is effectively that independent third party. So you don't get a police officer. You don't get we don't have U.S. marshals, um, which which is a shame as far as I'm concerned. But um, the supervising solicitor acts as that officer of the court and all solicitors. So so I as a solicitor, um, all qualified solicitors in England and Wales are officers of the court. So by by appointing that independent person, that serves as the person who is reporting back to the court and saying, yes, this has been done properly but it's a big responsibility um, for that person so there must be some form of coercion in even among polite uh english society so what if the, the respondent won't allow you access to the the documents well hopefully they'll offer you a cup of tea but if but even if they won't allow you access they, they won't they won't let you you know let you in um they can, I mean, you can't just march in and force your way in. The court doesn't give you those powers. But what you would do in those circumstances is you would go back to court and you would make an application uh, for them to be committed to prison. Um, and 
most people, um, I mean, you, there's always exceptions, but most people faced with that kind of power, given the proper advice, you know, in those two hours they seek legal advice, will realise that actually they have no choice, effective choice, but to comply with the order. And therefore, that's why this is such an effective remedy. It immediately puts the fraudster on the back foot. You take away, hopefully, all the evidence you need to make your, your case. Um, and the other thing you can do is combine it with other remedies, such as Moreva injunctions, which we'll come on to shortly. Ah. Uh. Okay, well, I hate to interrupt such an exciting part of the program, but I'm being reminded here that I must interrupt the program to read the code for CLE credit in New York. Um, the code is only required for people seeking credit in New York, so lawyers from other states, y'all can just stand up and take a stretch break now. Um, I will read the code twice and only twice, and I cannot repeat it or email it to you, so please make note of it. The New York code assigned to this program is S as in Sam, A as in Apple, 31164-81921. Once more, the New York code assigned to this program is S as in Sam, A as in Apple, 31164-81921. So, Sarah, um, let, let's talk about alternatives, right? Because as much as I would love to obtain an Anton Piller um, someday in real life and, and even here for our hypothetical client, um, what if we simply can't meet the standard for that type of relief? Is there any other way for our hypothetical Chapter 7 trustee or for a US-based creditor to obtain information from a fraudster located in the UK? Yes, if we can't persuade you that you've got enough for an Anton Pillar, um, then there are uh, some other things you can do. And really, um, that's the benefit of getting the foreign proceedings recognised by the English courts, because that gives you as the insolvency office, how, uh, uh, can't speak, the insolvency office holder, um, other options as well. So, for example, you can get an order or you, you have the power to obtain a company's property or records from third parties, and that can be backed up by court order. Um, directors, former directors, employees, professional services providers such as lawyers and accountants all have duties to provide information to you that you reasonably require. Um, and if that isn't enough, you as the office holder can apply for an order requiring any person to provide information about the company or to attend an examination in court if you uh, if you can't get it any other way. So there are lots of powers. Um, the English courts have held, perhaps unsurprisingly, that they should only be used for legitimate purposes. Um, and there's some interesting examples of where liquidators have tried to use them in conjunction with uh, litigation. But But that's probably too much for today, I think. We, we should come back to that. We've had some interesting <laughs> cases in the U.S. actually. Uh, mm. We call it the pending proceeding rule, right, where the litigator mm. has a separate pending proceeding and, and there is some overlap and, and some dispute about what to do in cases where there's both a bankruptcy and a separate proceeding and, and what kind of discovery rights and, and whatnot. Sure. I, I think um, that, that's definitely a good area to discuss. Um, but, okay, so you, you've talked about what the, the liquidator can get from the company and, and mm -hmm. officers, employees, etc. relating to the company, but what about third parties, especially mm -hmm. like innocent third parties, right? So I'm not talking about the, the, the bad guys allies, um, mm -hmm. but can you, can you get information from third parties in the English courts? 
Now, I did tell you that the English courts were very helpful. So the answer is yes. Um, and there's really two different types of, of orders against third parties that we see um, in, in fraud, fraud situations. Uh, the first is, is the classic Norwich Pharmacal uh, order, where you know wrongdoing has taken place, but you don't know the identity of the wrongdoer. Uh, and you know that somebody does, an innocent third party does. So you can make an application to the court uh, for them to give up that information. And for that, you need to establish that the respondent, the innocent third party, is likely to have relevant documents or information. There's a good arguable case that there's been a wrongdoing. They can't provide it just through witness evidence um, that they're involved innocently or otherwise in the wrongdoing um, and the order sought is necessary in the interests of justice and it's not sought for an improper purpose which which is fair enough and then the other thing uh, you can do which which is really useful it's it's against banks um, in particular so it's much more narrow um, but they're called bankers trust orders and they're available against a bank where there's an obvious case of fraud and the claimant has clearly been fraudulently deprived of its funds and those funds are passed through the bank uh, and the claimant seeks disclosure of confidential documents from a defendant's bank to support a, a proprietary claim to trace any relevant assets. And that's useful because, as we all know, getting information out of banks, even when you've just forgotten a password or something, is impossible. So, so that's why we've got these, these jurisdictions for these, uh, for these court orders. Um, and in, those, in that scenario, the, the claimant's got to demonstrate to the court that there's a real prospect that the information from the bank will lead to the location and the preservation of assets, which, again, if you, if you can establish that the bank knows where the assets are, then that, that's a massive help. Excellent, excellent. Those are definitely powerful tools. Mm -hmm. um, Felipe, let's turn to Brazil. We know that several well-known Chapter 15 cases have arisen where Brazilian trustees have come to the U.S. for assistance in gathering evidence. Um, but talk to us about the flip side. What uh, tools are available to a liquidating trustee from the U.S. who wants to obtain evidence in Brazil? Of course, uh, with pleasure. Since uh, 2015, uh, we have a procedure uh, procedure similar to the rationale of the 1782 uh, US uh, proceeding that provide us with a pre-action discovery. Uh, so uh, whenever there's a fear that it will become impossible, very difficult to verify certain facts or even to avoid or confirm the need to file a specific claim uh, the foreign liquidator can request the examination of a witness and obtain any type of documents from third party, as long as, uh, as long, of course, you can demonstrate that that party would, uh, would have access to such document. Uh, and uh, the point is, as I don't believe we are as polite as the British, uh, there's no Anton Peeler similar, <laughs> no kick on the door, but, but uh, if an order is granted and the, you have sufficient evidence to show that that party is entitled to that document having in, in their possession, uh, an officer of the court, uh, with even with the help of the police, if necessary, would enforce the order. And also, uh, you can the, the the court can determine any sanction that can grant to obligate the party to comply with the order as well. Okay, excellent. So you can take this sort of pre-action discovery. Is that only available in bankruptcy cases or is that available to other litigants as well? No, no, it's, it's available to all litigants. Okay, um, so Felipe, I've heard that the Brazilian government has developed some, some really unique tools that consolidate information about companies and bank accounts and make it available to courts and to litigants. Can you tell us about some of those tools? 
Yes, so we're talking about a system called Basenjud, which was later uh, changed its name to Sisbajud. Basically, uh, since 2001, uh, the creditors have at their uh, advantage this system, which is uh, which allows the seize of any Brazilian bank account by the touch of a button. So what happens is that uh, if you're a if you're a creditor on an enforcement procedure, well, you can just uh, request the the court to grant the Sisbajud system. So uh, it would, uh, so the so the so the court would just uh, locate all the assets automatically. So there, there's no need to go bank by bank. So just one push of a button, you can have access to bank records, and you can seize the funds. You can in this in the funds that are, are seized, of course, limited to the amount that you are enforcing, would be immediately transferred to the case files to a bank account uh, in connection with the case files. And it's uh, there for uh, actually the payment of the debt. Um, what is happening now, I think it's 2020, there was another tool that was developed by the Sisbajud uh, operational uh, um, group that now allows the order, this, this uh, electronic seize order to be automatically renewed. So what happens is that let's say there's monthly installments that that account is receiving from the sale of uh, asset XYZ. That's going to be uh, continuously transferred to the case file until the overall debt is paid. Well, that's just amazing to me, both the discovery and the efficiency of, of the freezing because here in the U.S., our, our system is not at all centralized. So essentially, as litigators uh, and our poor clients, when they're stuck in these situations, we're like playing whack-a-mole. You go to one bank and you whack it, and, and it turns out that the funds move to another bank. And by the time you get over there and you serve your subpoena or your garnishment writ on that other bank, the funds have moved somewhere else. And, um, you know, it's like playing peekaboo with a child, except you're usually talking about very large amounts of money. <laughs> um, so it, it is really exciting that this is a centralized system. And I, I want to emphasize that for our listeners who have never heard about it before. Um, I think there was one other system you had told me about, Felipe, the Simba system. Yes, uh, Simba is another. It's, it's just um, it's a little harder to get access to the Simba file because this is a, a integrated system between the uh, Brazilian IRS and banks. So you can actually get a report that is handcrafted by the IRS, uh, people that shows um, all the transactions that the, that entity made. So if acquired something from a third party, that shows uh, over there as well. And uh, this type of, uh, let's say, more sophisticated tool is often used in criminal file, files, money laundering issues. I think you heard of, of the Lava Jato operation, that Simba file helped a lot to uh, recover assets and even to identify the actual transactions that were uh, claimed as, as illegal. Um, yeah, mainly in, in reorganization procedures, not, not sorry, not reorganization, actually in, in full uh, court liquidations where there is evidences of fraud uh, the state, and with the help of the state prosecutor, we're often getting access to such uh, such tools. Excellent. And so you told us earlier that these tools and the pre-suit discovery and, and these tools are, are available not only to bankruptcy trustees, but also to creditors. Uh, but what about you, Sarah? In, in the UK, the tools that you described, I think the Norwich Pharmacal, the Bankers Trust Orders, um, Mareva injunctions, or I guess we haven't talked about those yet, but but um, the discovery 
orders that you talked about, are those only for bankruptcy trustees or are they available outside of bankruptcy as well? Oh no, available to anyone. Um, very accommodating the English courts in that regard. And uh, Naina, uh, since our listening, listeners are mostly US-based lawyers, uh, we're assuming that they are aware of the US discovery process and what a great tool uh, the subpoena power is for investigating in case of fraud. Uh, however, are there any new developments in this area that you could share with them? Yes, um, so you are right that, that subpoenas are a very powerful tool. Um, and sometimes faced with that kind of power, uh, fraudsters uh, decide to follow mother's advice. You know, um, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. Um, so the only way to do that, unfortunately, in the US system um, is not to receive the subpoena, right? Because once you receive the subpoena, you're you're under compulsion. And, and as, as Sarah said, you know, the um, penalty is very similar in the US as it is in the UK. If you don't comply with, with a court order or with a subpoena, you could ultimately uh, find yourself in jail um, under what we call a writ of bodily attachment. So go back to the beginning, what do you have to do? You have to dodge the process server in the hopes of never receiving the subpoena, so then you won't have to testify, you won't have to serve documents, etc. Um, and that unfortunately happens far more often than we would like. Um, it happened recently in a Chapter 15 case um, with which Felipe is, is quite familiar because he's the lawyer representing the trustee in the foreign maiden proceeding in Brazil. Hmm. Um, and, and the reason that it's an interesting decision, it's not just your ordinary <laughs> um, subpoena dodging situation, was actually because the decision was just so um, well-reasoned. It, it sets out um, a lot of, of very good information and, and standards for U.S. lawyers to think about. So it's a case called Ita Pemirin. Um, I have included an article about the decision in the course materials, and the full uh, decision can be found at the following citation. It's 2019 Westlaw 541-9550. Again, for anybody who wants to make note of it, it's 2019 Westlaw 541-9550. And at issue in Itapemini was a subpoena that was served on a woman at a residence who at the time told the process server that she was the wife of the subpoena target. Um, so it was substitute served on her. It later came out that she was not the wife, she was the housekeeper, um, and that the address where the, the subpoena was served was the Florida residence of the target's family. Um, and the subpoena target was listed on the lease for that address, but he claimed that he was out of the country at the time that the subpoena was served, that the service was not good, therefore on him, um, and that furthermore, he had no intention of ever returning to that apartment or to Florida at all. So given the fact that he had residences, other residences abroad, it wasn't clear if the Florida property was at the time the target's primary or perhaps a secondary residence. And this is unfortunately a really common issue with targets and asset recovery cases um, where they have enough wealth to maintain not only multiple residences, but a really passing presence in several locations. So it's really not easy to deliver documents like a subpoena into their hands. Um, after reviewing what is a growing body of case law that distinguishes between service of process, which generally does require hand delivery or certain specified forms of alternative service, 
um, service of process, which happens at the beginning of the case, um, Judge Mark determined that there was a distinction between that and service of a subpoena. He found that it really was not material whether the target was physically in Florida or not at the time of service, nor was it material whether this was his primary or secondary residence. Um, the court determined that the relevant inquiry is whether the substitute service was reasonably calculated to ensure receipt of the subpoena by the witness. And the court concluded that service upon the housekeeper at the family residence in Florida was sufficient. So, um, you know, it was a very useful decision for us, uh, you know, in our, our need to depose people, you know, obtain documents, et cetera, particularly where they can be very difficult to locate. Okay, so I think we've talked about tools sufficiently to gather information that tells you where missing assets might be found, but how do we get them back? Sarah, let's start uh, with the English courts. Can the English courts help us with that? But of course, we are, as I've always already mentioned, very helpful. Um, the main remedy here is the freezing or the Moravia injunction, which we've kind of alluded to before. But when it's granted, it freezes the respondent's assets completely pending a resolution of a case or ready for enforcement, depending on uh, what stage it's uh, it's granted at. Okay. And, and so, Felipe, can the Brazilian courts help us to preserve assets? But of course, uh, we also have preliminary injunctions and attachments available. So uh, in case of insolvency proceeding, uh, the trustee can obtain relief under the bankruptcy law or the civil procedural law. As just by way of example, uh, from the civil procedural code, uh, it provides that uh, urgent relief will always be granted where there are elements that show the likelihood of success of such claim and the risk of uh, to the use, useful outcome of the proceeding. So uh, in such context, we can freeze any type of assets in anticipation of an enforcement procedure or the enforcement of a foreign order or a, a, a domestic order as well. Uh, the recognition further allows the foreign representative to avoid fraudulent transactions by bringing the legal actions referred in Articles 129 and 130 of the Brazilian Bankruptcy uh, Law. It's uh, also quite interesting to mention that uh, Brazilian courts had allowed the recognition of a foreign injunction, such as uh, Mariva injunction, as, as, as my colleague Sarah just, just pointed out, or any similar measure to freeze any type of assets. Um, this type of measure is more akin to um, to a committee injunction in the U.S. rather than a freestanding injunction granted under uh, the local law. Excellent, excellent. Um, so let's talk about the evidence, the elements required to get this kind of relief in in both of the jurisdictions. Um, let's start with you, Sarah. What what do you have to establish to get a freezing order in the U.K.? Well, for, I mean, the, what, what the court basically wants to establish is that the grant of the order is just and convenient. We're all about justice and convenience in England. Um, and so an applicant will therefore need to establish to the satisfaction of the court that, um, again, one, it has a good arguable case against the respondent, uh, two, that the English court has jurisdiction, three, that the assets sought actually exist and there's some certainty on where they are, four, there's a real risk of illegitimate dissipation of those assets. Again, you've got to show that the fraudsters are generally a bad egg and will uh, um, potentially dissipate those assets. Um, 
and then five back to this issue we were discussing earlier if you're wrong um, and the order's granted and it shouldn't have been um, and it turns out later it shouldn't have been you can pay the respondent compensation for the losses that they've suffered because the order's been wrongly granted uh, and then six I think we're up to six now um, the injustice to the respondent doesn't outweigh the potential benefit for you as the applicant Again, because you're going to be making this application uh, without notice to the respondent, there is this duty of full and frank disclosure and you've got that empty chair staring back at you once again. Oh, yes, yes. Arguing <laughs> with the empty chair. Is yes, quite. As easy as it should be, right? <laughs> quite, quite. Um, so, Sarah, what kind of assets can be reached by, by a freezing order? I mean, pretty much anything. Uh, Money is the classic, funds in an account, cars, property, paintings, antiques. Um, if you can make out a case for your, your the portrait of your dead grandmother being very valuable, that could be uh, frozen. And more recently, and more in a more modern sense, uh, cryptocurrency, crypto assets, are, are all of which are things that, that the English courts will, will be uh, willing to freeze. Excellent. Um, you had talked a little bit about, um, in the Norwich Pharmacal context, situations where you don't know the identity of the fraudster. Mm. So what if you know the identity of the assets but not the identity of the fraudsters? Uh, does that cause a problem? Well, yeah, I mean, it creates a practical problem for sure, but um, but in principle, it's not a problem because the English courts are willing to grant a freezing order against uh, persons unknown. So providing you can sort of define the class of persons that you want the freezing order against, that is in principle possible. Now, how much use that will be depends on the circumstances of the case, but the jurisdiction is is really very wide. Um, for example, you can obtain a freezing order against third parties where they hold assets on behalf of a debtor. Um, and anyone put on notice of a freezing order within the jurisdiction of the English courts must also comply with it. And if you fail to do so, you can be sent to prison. So I think that the ability is there to cast the net very wide. And, um, you know, you've just got to decide whether that whether that's going to be helpful in your particular circumstances. Right. You don't want to go to all that trouble just to have them slip through the, the wide net. No, 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 no nets with holes in them or not big holes no. anyway. <laughs> um, so, Felipe, what if the information that we obtained, let's say in that uh, the Anton Pillar order that I really want to get from the English courts, um, let's say it leads me to an asset in Brazil. What could a Chapter 7 trustee or a U.S. based creditor do to preserve that asset in Brazil? Okay, so always so starting with the uh, with the chapter seven trustee. I think uh, uh, upon the recognition of the foreign proceeding, the Brazilian court shall cooperate to the maximum extent possible uh, with foreign courts or foreign representatives. Uh, such a system can be actually materialized uh, by examining witnesses, production of evidence, and of course seizing any asset, any type of asset that is located in Brazil. Uh, such a system can also be delivered through the Sisbajut uh, system, which is the press of a button seize order, electronic seize order that I just mentioned, which helps a lot and can even be provided, granted on the context of uh, of an injunction. So let's say you need to be sure that you, 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 you want to figure out if there's any funds there before you actually start an enforcement procedure. You might as well just get your injunction recognized and through the Sisbajut system, you can actually uh, get evidence enough or seize the funds before you actually get your recognition procedure, either if it's a, a judgment, a credit, 
or the whole reorganization or the whole insolvency procedure that you saw to be recognized. Uh, the law doesn't uh, uh, gives a lot of discretion to the judge as to the relief that can be uh, provided. So it's just a matter of actually uh, explaining your case and explaining that the, uh, any particular situation derived from your uh, from your debtor. And then uh, if the requirements are met, you're probably going to be uh, successful and have your, your order granted. Okay, um, let, let's emphasize the elements that you have to establish. What, what exactly do you have to establish to get a preliminary injunction under Brazilian law? Of course, uh, to be as objective as possible, uh, you need to show probability of success. That means uh, that you have enough documents, that you have, uh, a, 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 that you've shown that that party is liable, could be liable for that situation in the, in the near, near future. Uh, as well as the risk of dissipation of that of such asset, and of course to protect the useful outcome of the proceeding. That means that if you want to stall a transaction because if the transaction went forward, your your case is going to be useless. Uh, you can uh, uh, file in our courts to ask for for any additional relief. And um, so assuming you can establish those elements, what kind of assets could be protected? You, you've mentioned funds through the, the seized by Jude system. What other types of assets could we reach? Any type of assets. You can vehicles, uh, airplanes, boats, whatever you can find that is in Brazil, of course, in Brazilian jurisdiction. It's, uh, it's good enough to pay the bill. <laughs> and... Um, Felipe, you mentioned recognition of foreign injunctions, so a, com a type of comedy injunction. What do you have to show in order to have a foreign injunction recognized in Brazil? Uh, other than procedural issues such as getting documents translated, apostille, consularization of the documents, uh, the supporting the necessary documents, I think it's necessary to demonstrate that the order that you're trying to recognize here does not violate any Brazilian public policy and does not violate any Brazilian legislation. That's uh, that's it. And of course, you need to also show that there's a probability of success just as it would be necessary for a national uh, uh, um, domestic filing. Uh, so it's the probability of success and the risk of dissipation of such assets. Right. Um, so, um, Sarah, what about assets that might be held outside of the jurisdiction of the English courts? Um, you know, England is a small country, but what can they do about other wow. jurisdictions? Wow, <laughs> that's sorry, very personal. It's an island. <laughs> um, gosh, wow. Um, so, where assets are completely outside the jurisdiction. Um, the English court can't freeze them, obviously, um, but what they can do is where assets are outside the jurisdiction, but the person controlling them is within the jurisdiction, then they can freeze them. And that's what's known as a worldwide freezing order, which which sounds very grand. But yeah, as you say, England is but a small island. Um, what we would say is that if you're ever applying for an order of that type and you know that the assets are physically located somewhere else, regardless of whether the English court has jurisdiction to, to grant a worldwide freezing order, um, the, uh, it makes sense to enlist the courts of that, that country where the assets are located. And one area where the English courts are really well placed for this is some of the offshore jurisdictions. So for example, the Cayman Islands, British Virgin Islands, uh, to lesser extent, Jersey and Guernsey, uh, because there, 
legal systems tend to be very similar to, to or based on ours um, and therefore the recognition of English judgments and orders is made very easy uh, which is much easier than somewhere like uh, France or Germany which is especially the case after Brexit. Um, <laughs> Particularly. Yeah quite. Now what about assets outside the jurisdictions of the US courts Niana or, or is the US just too big uh, to have assets without outside its jurisdiction? <laughs> well <laughs> We, we are still, you know, in that imperialistic phase, so to speak. I think <laughs> um, the U.S. courts, the bankruptcy courts, certainly consider that they have worldwide jurisdiction. The problem, of course, is whether you can enforce it. But as you said, um, that's often done through control of the person. So sure. if the person is within the jurisdiction of the U.S., even if there are assets offshore, they can be ordered and they can be held in contempt of court for refusing to comply with an order to return those courts or to subject them uh, to the control of a liquidator or, or a creditor. Um, it is a somewhat uh, not well-developed area, however, I will say. So, you know, there, there are some well-reasoned decisions in this area and as an asset recovery lawyer I, I hope to see more and, and uh, you know we, we hope to develop that a little bit further. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess before we sign off I don't want to hold up our, our listeners for more time than they have committed to um, but Sarah these freezing orders sound fantastic, um, but there's always a catch, right? What, are there any other limitations that our listeners should be aware of? Yes. I mean, as always, you've got to make sure that what you're looking for is suitable for what you're trying to get. Um, and the thing with freezing orders, the first thing to be aware of is that they are there to prevent the illegitimate disposal of assets. It cannot prevent their legitimate use. So you can get your freezing order and it can sit there beautifully. Um, but if the if the respondent can establish they need to use the funds that are frozen to operate their business, to meet legal fees, to pay their living expenses, then you can sit there with your lovely piece of paper and watch those assets go out the door because that's all legitimate use and you, you can't stop that uh, unless you can get a proprietary injunction which preserves a particular sort of set of assets or funds. Um, well, fees is always fun right when they're litigating with your own clients money oh yeah oh <laughs> yeah yeah paying their lawyers with your clients money and explaining that to clients is always tricky and especially I mean sometimes it makes you look like really good value right and other times uh, you're trying to explain to your client why their lawyers are cheaper than you because they're not as good obviously so a whole can of worms there um, and that brings me on to the second point really which is you know are the assets worth it these orders are expensive you know however good I, I bang on about how good the English courts are but they are expensive to litigate in so you've got to make sure that your pot is big enough to make this worthwhile particularly if you're going over to Cayman or other jurisdictions as well um, and then also you know high hurdles to meet to satisfy the court the English courts are not easily pleased so you need to be happy that you, you can meet those hurdles before you start um, and then just tying back into uh, are the assets worth it you've got to look at enforceability you know, nobody wants a really expensive piece of paper while the assets are somewhere else and can't be enforced against. So um, lots of things to think about, but used in the right way, this, this stuff can be tremendously effective and, and helpful for the, uh, for the insolvency practitioner. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm reminded by your last comment there of a, of a client who came knocking on my door after trying for several years to enforce a judgment. And she said, look, 
I'm tired of winning. I just want to get paid. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there, right? Discovery <laughs> is really all about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, I guess in closing, I just want to say thank you so much for, for sharing your knowledge with us and, and information about the English and Brazilian legal systems. I think that that you know, particularly for our audience, which is mostly based in the U.S., it, it's just very helpful to know that, despite what some some Americans might tell us, the world does not end at our shores, and and there are helpful uh, courts and and helpful tools available uh, to us as litigators overseas. Been a pleasure. Been a Thank pleasure. you so much for having us. Great Thank pleasure. you, Sarah.